<laughs> there are a few things I don't miss being up here that we had in the south. <clears throat> fire ants. You know what fire ants are? <laughs> they build these little mounds, and um, they don't like being disturbed. And if you have a, a home, if you have a yard in the south, of course, uh, sometimes you disturb them. Now, you know, I was kind of rambunctious as a, a child and young man, and so I had uh, a way of getting into trouble, and I've had my encounters with fire ants and have the stings to prove it. These little things bite you and uh, makes little welts on you. I don't miss fire ants a bit. I don't miss yellow jackets. You know, I'm a UGA supporter, always have been, and our, one of our main rivals is Georgia Tech, and their mascot's the Yellow Jackets. But that's not why I didn't like Yellow Jackets so much. By the way, Jessica had a, a, a Yellow Jacket shirt on the other night. I said, take that off, it's ugly. She didn't think I was funny, but I said it in a joking manner. Uh, one time when I was in, uh, I think I was fifth grade, we had a biology project to go catch butterflies and make a collection. It was a great idea. Uh, I was catching butterflies out in the woods one day, and I saw a yellow jacket. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to catch a nest of yellow jackets? Until you have to pull it up, and then they come out, and I bear the scars from that. I don't miss kudzu either. One time I was in a kudzu patch, and uh, almost... I almost got bit by a poisonous snake. I haven't told my mom that story. Y'all don't tell her for me, okay? Uh, but uh, kudzu, y'all know what kudzu is? How many? Yeah, this is interactive, okay? Uh, kudzu is this vine that came originally from East Asia. And it was planted uh, first for a, a decorative plant to put on porches down south. Every, down south, everybody has a porch, right? And, and so these plants were nice to look at. They have pretty purple flowers uh, until they start growing. Uh, these plants grow. Uh, one southern writer calls them the, the vine that ate the south. Uh, and they are unique to that warm, wet climate down south. Uh, that's why we don't have it up here. I guess the winters kill the kudzu, and for that, I'm glad. <clears throat> kudzu is something that uh, it has some uses. It has some medicinal uses. It, it also is pretty good to eat. The roots are said to taste like potatoes, and you can make uh, almost all the parts except the vine are edible. Uh, so some people have kudzu recipes that they swear by. And not, not I, but some others do. Uh, but the reason I'm talking about kudzu today is, is this one fact about kudzu that amazes me. Do you know kudzu... A botanist tell us can grow up to a foot a week. A foot a week. That might seem like your middle schoolers are growing a foot a week, but uh, this is proven. Up to 98 feet in length can kudzu grow. That's why you go along some southern roads and highways, and everything along the hillside and the landscape has kudzu vines on it. Telephone poles are covered in kudzu. Uh, I said this in the first service, and somebody came up to me afterwards and talk, talking about a baseball stadium where one side of it was all covered in kudzu. I believe it. It climbs up things and grows and proliferates. And so when I think about Second Thessalonians, when I think about the church in Thessalonica, I think about kudzu. Why? Uh, we're going to look at that today. We're starting a series called Saddle Up. Now, why do I call it Saddle Up? 
I, I do that because I believe we live in challenging times for Christians and the church. Uh, I believe our culture is increasingly hostile toward the faith of Jesus Christ. And I believe because of that, we'll, we'll face some hardship. We'll face some trial. You see, the church at Thessalonica, from the very beginning, faced trial and trouble. And yet, it continued to grow, and, and especially, it grew in some very specific traits. It had some very specific strengths that we're going to talk about today. But throughout this next few weeks, we're going to do a, a series of going through Second Thessalonians, because I believe we need some of the same teaching that they did. Uh, we need some of the same preparation uh, for challenging times for our faith. So that's what we're going to look at. First, I want to start this week with the background of the church. This is kind of background that you'll need for, for all the different uh, sermons. It helps us to understand what he writes better. We see the background of the church in Acts chapter 17. It talks about Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, uh, who went to this place, Thessalonica, and began to preach and, and ultimately started a church. When Paul and his companions, this is verse 1, had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Thessalonica was named for the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Thessaloniki, you would say in Greek. Uh, she uh, was also married to Cassander, who was one of the generals. He actually was the governor of Macedonia. Uh, so it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, as was his system, uh, as was his custom, rather. Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He went to preach, to teach. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Uh, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So there was a great response to the preaching of the gospel. But there also was a negative response to his preaching. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. <clears throat> it always amazes me that it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Uh, they see Jesus as a troublemaker. They see Paul and the others want who want to spread his benefits and blessings to others as troublemakers. Why? Uh, because he threatened their way of life, because he threatened their values. Likewise today, as we share the gospel message, as we share who Jesus is, it comes into conflict with a lot of things that make people comfortable, that make people in our culture comfortable, that maybe sometimes, if we're honest, make us comfortable. Jason has welcomed them into their house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So here the church starts, three weeks old, and all of a sudden there's this great riot. So out of chaos, out of persecution, was the church born. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, these letters were written because Paul couldn't stay a long time in Thessalonica. They were written as instruction. Uh, 
written from the city of Corinth back to the church in Thessalonica. You know, Thessalonica is still uh, one of the few places that's been a city since the writing of the New Testament. Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece today. It's uniquely situated in a very important place for trade. It's a coastal port city on the Aegean Sea, and it was a transit from the Roman Empire throughout the world east of Rome. In fact, a major highway called the Agnation Way went right through Thessalonica, and that's why it was a wealthy city. That's why there were lots of tradesmen uh, that would uh, have people coming through and do business in this place. William Barclay says you can't understate the importance of the church being born and growing in Thessalonica to the spread, listen to this, to the spread of worldwide Christianity. Why? Because this major highway, as you had a church and the gospel influence there in Thessalonica, it could spread from the, to the east into Rome, and we know a church started in Rome. It could go to the west uh, excuse me, west to Rome, east to Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. It's very important uh, to have a church here. And this church, it seems, uh, had a major concern with the second coming of Christ. Now, what is that? From the Old Testament, which talks about the day of the Lord, to the New Testament, uh, there is this understanding. And the reality is Christianity has always looked forward there's this understanding that not only did Jesus come the first time, but he will come again. There will be a second coming of Christ. And so a major subject matter of 1 Thessalonians was the second coming of Christ. And apparently they didn't understand what Paul wrote and taught them in 1 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians also has that as a major subject. But it also has for us some major theological teaching. Now, oftentimes, uh, we read the New Testament epistles, and we maybe skip over the beginning and the end, <laughs> just like we do today, right? Uh, I mean, you very seldom spend a lot of time looking at the heading or the salutation of a communication, whether it be a written letter or an email. You very seldom spend a lot of time looking at the bottom, right? You just skip over that. But right here, as we begin and talk about these first three verses, there's some some rich teaching that I want to share with you as we thinking, think about saddling up. The first is it teaches us about the head of the church. It teaches us the authority with which Paul writes and the, the organization of the church. And it also teaches a very important concept. Let's look at it together. First, uh, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Paul and Silas and Timothy... Uh, the authors, that's how he typically wrote back then. You'd put the authors' names first. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The head of the church is the Father. And as you see often in the New Testament, the Father and Jesus work together. Uh, the, two of the members of the Godhead, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in a moment, but these three gods... Yet one, they all are part of and work together to infuse the church of God, to, to make possible our lives and to better our lives. So the God, the Father, he protects, he provides, he perseveres. And 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important title, Lord, means boss, master, ruler. But the crucial fact here is that little bitty word. You might have caught it. I tried to emphasize it, but I'm going to say it clearly this time. In God, our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that so significant? No no other major world religion teaches that God comes to live within you, that he comes to dwell in you. It's very significant that the Scripture teaches as we learn about and understand our sinfulness, as we own that and confess it to God, as we believe by faith in Jesus Christ, as we confess him before others after confessing and repenting of our sins, we're baptized into Christ. We receive the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of our sins. And God comes to live inside of us. What that means very clearly, and especially this is important to understand in times of trouble, in times of trial. Maybe you're stressed, maybe you're in trouble now because of your faith. Maybe that's caused you some trouble. Maybe it's for other reasons. But understand this, if God is in you, that means you're never alone. If God is in you, that means he will continue to work in and through you. Very important for us to understand. Second Peter 1 4 says, the, through, the, through these he had given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may have participate in the divine nature. That is, we participate in the divine nature because God is living in us. God lives through us, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, what I'm not saying is that you somehow are God yourself and that you just have to find the God in you. No, I'm talking about Christ coming to reside in us. And then Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus comes to live in us. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, to fill us, to lead us. But we have to make that choice every day. You know, when I visited with Connor Buttram about being baptized, I said this to him, which I say to most uh, kids and adults that I baptize. Beginning is, the baptism is one step. Baptism is the first step, hopefully in a life, a daily life of putting Jesus first instead of yourself. A daily decision to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh, not be self-oriented. What he's saying here is that Jesus comes to live in us. So who, who can stop that? No other person can stop or quelch Jesus living in us. Only our decision can stop him from doing what he wants to do. And that then is what's hinted to us by verses 3 and 4. The two strengths of this church I really want you to focus on today, the two strengths of this church that are brought to mind, uh, bring to mind kudzu to me, are found in verse 3. And then verse 4 gives us the context for why these verses are so important. What enabled the Thessalonian church to persevere? What can 
uh, help, help our church to persevere as well? What can help us individually to live in a victorious way? Verse 3 says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because, here are the strengths, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. And in the context, verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all, their perseverance, that is, they overcome even though it's not popular to be a Christian in Thessalonica, even though it brings them hardship, they persevere and you have faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. Now, those two words in Greek we found in verse 3, those verbs, the first means a flourishing faith, a flourishing faith. That is a superabundant faith, kind of like a vine that grows a foot a week. That is, every day their faith grew a little bit more. You know, oftentimes we talk about conversion to Christianity. We talk about faith as if it's a one-time transaction. A person's saved. They become a Christian. Not understanding it is a daily choice, a daily process of growing to be more like him. If we decide that this is going to be the Lord's day, if we decide that his values and his priority is going to be first in our lives, then he'll increase that faith a little bit. Our faith level will grow. It can even grow super abundantly where we can have faith no matter what's going on around us. Likewise, he says, this love that overflows. That Greek word brings to mind a river overflowing the banks. <clears throat> now, if you've ever had in your house a uh, water a line burst, you got problems, right? Water gets everywhere. Uh, not always is overflowing a good thing, but here, what he's saying is, the uncondi- when he says love, the unconditional love, the unconditional service, the unconditional regard that this church has, is overflowing in Thessalonica. Let me ask you a question. Can you ever love too much? Can you ever love unconditionally too much? I don't think so. Listen, we have a great opportunity at Northside Christian Church here in Warrensburg. You know, I talked about how Thessalonica was uniquely situated where it could have a great impact on the world around it. Listen, here in this place, I've always considered us a kingdom training center because we have folks that come to us to the university to study or to work and they're here for a time and then they go somewhere else in the world. We have folks that come here to serve us in the military, whether it be the Air Force or other branches that do some operations here. They're here for a time, a lot of them, and they go elsewhere. If we can have this kind of flourishing faith, if we can have this kind of overflowing love in this place and grow and understand we're not just growing as disciples ourselves, but we all are involved in making other disciples. If we can excel, if we can have 
growth like kudzu grows, if we can grow faith like that, love like that, how great an impact can we have? We can actually have a worldwide influence, one person at a time. So, is that what we're doing? How does your garden grow? How and what is the level of this church of faith, of love? Now, I got to tell you, kudzu has actually stopped spreading down south. Why? Six years ago, botanists found the first of what have become many Japanese kudzu bugs. Somebody apparently brought one over from Eastern Asia. Japanese kudzu bugs exist to suck all the life out of kudzu vines. And so, if you go to kudzu patches these days, you might go and and smell a smell like grape bubble gum mixed with this nasty odor of stink bug. See, these kudzu bugs have a natural defense mechanism of spraying this noxious odor. And those bugs are turning entire patches of kudzu brown. They're killing them. In our faith life, we have enemies. The New Testament names Satan as the chief enemy. He loves, he loves for a Christian to lose their first love. But I think there are other enemies as well. We get distracted. Our priorities become something else. Maybe our career, maybe our education, maybe the building of a material kingdom, hobbies even. A person, another person can become our priority instead of first loving and pleasing Christ. And so that faith which may once have been up here is slowly decreasing. Our love, once up here, are overflowing. But I say this to you, it is totally our choice. I don't believe any person can involuntarily pull you away from God, from Christ, if you're a believer. I don't believe any of us are destined to decrease in faith and love. It's our choice. We have to, I believe, make that choice. As it says in the book of James, to draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. We have to make that choice to welcome him into our lives, to let him lead. See, here's what happened. God uh, happens. God gives us the Holy Spirit, and we are commanded in the New Testament to let the Spirit fill us, to let the Spirit lead us. But we all make a choice every day. Am I going to be driving my life, or is the Holy Spirit? And oftentimes, because I think of the enemy's influence, enemy, singular enemy's influence, I think we... We sometimes say to the Holy Spirit, hey, you get in the back. 
I'm going to drive. If you want your garden to grow, you got to tame the bugs. If you want your garden to grow, you got to get rid of the bugs. John 15 says, Jesus says, I'm the true vine and you're the branches. You, you have to be connected to me and you're supposed to bear fruit. I think you could understand a fruit of faith and love, of grace and of peace. But it's your choice. It's my choice. How does your garden grow? How does our garden grow? Father, as we think about these things today, I pray that we've been thinking during this time of our level of faith, our level of love. <clears throat> if there's anything we've recognized that's a bug that's keeping us from having a flourishing faith, from having an overflowing love, let us give it to you. Let us confess it. Let's deal with it. With your help, with your strength, let us overcome it. I thank you, Lord, that, that you come to live inside of us. Because I can die to self and let Jesus live in me. I'm never alone. I pray for each of my friends here today that, that we would know that. We're not alone if we are a believer. I pray also that we would, we would let you drive. Where we realize that we've wandered, where we realize that we've strayed, I pray that we'd make that right today. Help us to be known like the Thessalonian church as a place, a body of flourishing faith and overflowing love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.